I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. <coughs> Welcome to IntroVets Podcast. Hello. Today we have a case for you. So today we have Chica. Chica is a five-year-old female spade hound mix, and she lives in southern Tennessee. She presented for a second opinion. She's had a swelling on the left side of the mandible for several weeks. About two weeks before the owner noted the swelling, the pet had been in a dog fight with her housemate. She saw another veterinarian who prescribed an antibiotic, and it seemed to help a little. But after running out of the medication, the swelling returned and was worse again. And now the patient is lethargic and not eating well. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So we're, we're a second opinion case here. Mm-hmm. Let's see what we're seeing on physical exam. On physical exam, uh, the patient had a mild fever. Temperature was 103.9 degrees Fahrenheit. Hmm. There was a large, about the size of a baseball, soft swelling in the area of the left mandibular lymph node. It was difficult to tell if the swelling is a lymph node or a salivary gland or possibly something different altogether. No other abnormalities are noted on the physical exam. And a needle aspirate of the swelling yields more than 5 mL of serosanguinous fluid. In-house cytology shows occasional red blood cells, occasional neutrophils, and no obvious infectious organisms. Okay, well, uh, that's a little weird. Um, Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about some differentials. Okay, well, infectious. Yeah, it could still be bacterial. It responded at least somewhat to antibiotics. The fluid that they're pulling off is odd, though, so maybe it's some type of seroma. There mm-hmm. was the history, like, of that dog fight, you know, so maybe uh, there was some tissue damage and it just hasn't healed fully. It's not like they're pulling pus out of this. It's just fluid with kind of a nonspecific cytology, okay? It's weird. Mm-hmm. So Ew. maybe a foreign body reaction. So I have... Uh, seen in practice before a, a dogfight incident where a tooth actually broke off uh, from one dog and stuck inside of the wound of the other. And Ooh. it swelled up really bad, like not right away, but like a couple of weeks later. And we were able to find the tooth eventually with x-ray. So, all right. So we'll say any type of foreign body, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then neoplasia or cancer, maybe. The dog is young, though. We're not seeing any scary-looking cells on in-house cytology. So really, to me, that's towards the bottom of the list. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, fungal disease. We always kind of put that on the list anytime there's some, like, weird skin crap going on that, that hasn't responded to antibiotics. Mm-hmm. It's also a young dog with a fever. So, like, mm, that's a little suspicious. Mm-hmm. But um, the patient's not coughing. And uh, fungal disease often presents, like, with pulmonary signs. Um, That doesn't rule it out, but to me it seems a little bit less likely. There was a partial response to antibiotics as well, which I wouldn't necessarily expect if it was a fungal illness, although sometimes antibiotics can reduce inflammation, so maybe that's why. And then Mm -hmm. we didn't see any fungal organisms on cytology. Again, that doesn't rule it out, but seems less likely. Yep. So I think we really need to collect some additional information about this case. So I'm going to say I am going to want to pull some blood on this dog uh, and do a minimum database, which, as we've talked about before, is 
a complete blood count, a chemistry profile, and a urinalysis. That's just to kind of see, is anything else happening systemically with this patient? Mm -hmm. The other thing that I would do is try to get a really good cytology sample of that swelling and send that out to the pathologist and maybe even send the fluid too, just to see like, can they find something that we couldn't find like on an in-house slide? So I'd really like to do those things next. <laughs> wah, wah. The owner declines further testing at this time and prefers empirical okay. treatment due to cost concern. Okay. I mean, well, that's not all that out of the ordinary, to be honest. So, no. all right. So if I was seeing this patient in clinical practice, it's you know, a stable patient, it's responded partially to antibiotics, there's the history of the dog fight, you know, we're not seeing anything ultra scary on cytology, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to restart the antibiotic for longer <laughs> and see if it goes away. I mean, if we can't do anything else, that's honestly what I would do. So, so I would restart the antibiotic and I would have the pet do a period of strict rest, just in case this is some weird late onset seroma. And, you know, maybe warm compressor ice packs. Like, I think both of those things are controversial. It's not an acute thing, so maybe people would argue that ice packs aren't a good idea. Warm compresses, you know, maybe we can kind of, like, get it to open up and drain. But on the other hand, that might make a mess. And then some people say, well, warm compresses are going to increase your blood flow to the area, which is just going to make the swelling bigger. So, so that's a tough one. I, I'm going to say plus or minus some type of icing or warm <laughs> or nothing. <laughs> but that's what I would do if we had, you know, if we've got very limited funds. Something or nothing. Yeah. So cephalexin was restarted and the pet was sent home with instructions to rest and recheck in two weeks as long as she was doing well. Okay. At the two-week recheck, the pet was not improving, unfortunately. Okay. The swelling on the mandible had worsened and now was about the size of a softball and firm. The prescapular lymph node on that side was significantly enlarged, about the size of an egg, and both popliteal lymph nodes were enlarged. She didn't have a fever anymore. She had lost six pounds since the previous weight check. Oh. And she prefers to lay down in the exam room rather than to receive attention. Okay. Well, I hate all of those things. Mm -hmm. All of those things are bad. Okay. Well, uh, we're kind of in a between a rock and a hard place. We got to do some testing on this dog. There's not really going to be a conservative plan on this because we need to know what's happening. I don't feel like we can just keep guessing. So mm -hmm. I think we really need to come back and, and try to figure this out. So um, with the lymph node involvement, I'm going to change up my wish list just a little. So I'm going to say aspirate the lymph nodes uh, because I think neoplasia does have to move a little bit further up on our list. Also, fungal disease has to move up our list a little bit. Uh, bacterial involvement still possible. You know, maybe it's a type of bug that cephalexin just doesn't cover. Mm -hmm. We've got some weird organisms to think about. Mycobacterium, maybe pythium, you know, something weird like that. So the number one thing that I would want to do with this case is to get cytology of the enlarged lymph nodes and send it to the pathologist. It would also be great to do a minimum database. We might consider taking radiographs of the thorax and abdomen, or maybe even just the thorax if we're on limited funds. 
That's to screen for metastatic disease. So if we saw pulmonary nodules or to screen for like that classic fungal disease pattern in the chest. Mm -hmm. I really, really would want to do all of those things, but I worry that that might not be possible. But I do, though, want to do all of them in this case, (laughs) since the pet is doing so much worse, has lost six pounds and is laying around. I I super hate this. This makes me feel nervous about this dog. You can choose one test. (laughs) The owner only has two cupcakes and the things you just listed cost more like seven or eight cupcakes. Okay. And if anybody wants to know what the cupcake scale is about, you can refer to it on season one. Episode title, Super Unnecessary. Okay. Um, Well, if we can only pick one thing, I would make it aspirates of the lymph nodes. You can aspirate all the lymph nodes that are enlarged and they still count as one site. So that helps us with the money part. I would do a double check of in-house cytology before I send it out, though. So Mm -hmm. I would collect these samples, like maybe, you know, look under the microscope in-house and just make sure that I don't see something obvious. And then send those out to the lab. Um, Now, when I do this, it's to make sure that I don't miss something obvious, but it's also to make sure that the pathologist has cells to look at. And this is like one of my pet peeves. So anytime I'm working in a clinic and I'm having to call an owner with results and the results of the lymph node aspirates are just like, no lymph node was identified or, you know, like <laughs> fat was aspirated only. It drives me crazy because it's like mm-hmm. you spent a lot of money to get that answer back, which didn't help you at all. So it really takes just five minutes of your time to take some of the samples, look under the microscope and make sure that you're having a good population of cells for that pathologist to look at. That way mm-hmm. you're not wasting your client's money. Were your time. So, or the pathologist's time. And the pathologist's time. Yeah, I'm sure they are like, what the fuck? When one that's just fat. Like, oh my God. Okay, so that's what I would do. Lymph node aspirates, if I can only pick one thing, that is what I would pick. Well, good news. They agreed to do the lymph node aspirates. Okay. The results show pyogranulomatous inflammation and lymphoid hyperplasia. Damn it. Okay. Well, that, I mean, I hate to say that it doesn't really tell us anything, right? We didn't identify new organisms. We did not identify cancer cells. We did not rule out fungal disease and we did not rule out cancer. So, okay, um, this is a nonspecific finding. So we still need to try to get some more information. So we really have to just do more tests at this point. If I could pick additional things to do, I would want to do minimum database, again, CBC, chemistry, your analysis, and I would do radiographs. We, we really have to have more information. This is one of those things where, you know, the, the patient has failed empirical therapy. There, there's, I mean, you, there's no replacement for a diagnosis. We have to get the diagnosis to, mm-hmm. to know what to do. So the owner is willing to proceed with a minimum database, but okay. they need to wait for a week to do this. Okay. In the meantime, the veterinarian called the reference laboratory to consult with an internal medicine specialist. Yeah. Good job. And the internist recommends covering the pet with doxycycline while waiting for their testing. Okay. Okay. Well, look, number one, thank God, okay, <laughs> that we use the phone-a-friend option, right? Like, this is mm-hmm. one of my huge pet peeves. 
that people don't use this enough. Like every major reference laboratory staffs an entire posse of specialists just to answer your phone calls for free. Use them. Use them. Like, please. I mean, you're paying for it, truly. I mean, it's free, quote, but like you're paying for it wrapped into every test. So like, call them and talk to them about it. Mm -hmm. It also is a great way for you to learn because after you call someone about the same thing for the fifth time, you're by that sixth time, you're like, I know what they're going to (laughs) say, right? I already know what they're going to say. So it helps you learn. Okay, so Mm -hmm. number one, high five for the veterinarian calling and doing the phone a friend option. Number two, the doxycycline. Okay, I mean, I think that's reasonable. Uh, it recovers some of the weird bacterial organisms, you know, that we would think about potentially. It's not super pricey, so I think that's reasonable in the grand scheme of things. If, you know, we have to wait and the patient isn't feeling good, doxycycline is like kind of a low-risk situation to try. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so I think we're good. Okay. So when they were able to do it, the minimum database showed a mature neutrophilia mm-hmm. and a mildly elevated globulin. Okay. There, was no, uh, there weren't any other significant abnormalities, though. Okay. Well, shit. Uh, so those are all nonspecific. Uh, that, that sucks. Um, okay. <laughs> so we need to get some more testing. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So the changes there, the mature neutrophilia and the elevated globulin, do not point us in any one direction. They say the dog is inflamed, but they don't say anything <laughs> about for sure what's causing this. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I just, I mean, I hate to keep saying this, but we have to do some more tests. We've got to line through some items and we haven't been able to line through anything yet. So unfortunately, additional test is where we're at. I don't really see a way around it. Meanwhile, so the yeah. pet is now not eating well and starting to feel tired at home. Great. Uh, owner elects to move forward with radiographs. Okay. However, uh-huh. the owner mentions that the pet has a wound on the nose. When the veterinarian examines the pet, they identify a draining tract on the bridge of the nose. No shit. <laughs> there is mucopurulent discharge coming from the draining tract. Oh, JJ. Also, there are multiple subcutaneous firm nodules noted on the pet's flanks. Oh, shit. This is going to be fungal disease. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. So the dog's got now draining tracks. It's got those little granulomas coming up like this. I've seen this dozens of times. Like this is going to be fungal disease. It is. Mm. Oh, boy. Now, but we have to prove it, which can be like really fucking irritating. Okay. But this is what it is. Fungal disease skyrockets to the top of our differential list right here. So, um, I still want radiographs. Honestly, I would prioritize the thorax because we need to see if there are naughty granulomas hiding in the chest. And I would do a cytology of the draining tract. And I would like to send urine antigen testing uh, out for blastomycosis and histoplasma. Given how the case has gone so far, I kind of worry that I'm not going to be able to do all of those things, though. Yeah. So all those wonderful, fun things are about nine to ten cupcakes. That's true. And owner has about two cupcakes to work with for further testing. Okay. And they also let us know that after these two to three cupcakes, they're 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 strapped. They cannot invest any further in testing. Okay. Um, They would only be able to do empirical treatment from here on out. Okay. So we've got. 
<laughs> okay. So we got a limited amount to work with until the owner is done. Tapped out. Done. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this is going to be an exercise in prioritizing diagnostics right here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm glad that they're being upfront about this because it super sucks when an owner doesn't tell you and then you're out of money before you can even do anything that might help the patient treatment wise. Uh, So if I were going to prioritize, I would like accidentally (laughs) slip and drop a slide of the draining track material into the stain and then under the microscope and look at it without charging anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, because sometimes the draining tract has like tremendous organisms in it. So you can a lot of times diagnose it off of that. Okay. So if I wasn't sure about what I was seeing under the microscope though, then I would send that out to try to get an answer. And honestly, sometimes even if I'm like, this is what the fuck it is, then I still send it out because I just want someone else to be like, you are not crazy. Um, but if we're really strapped for cash, and we can't do it any other way. If I identify them in-house, I'm going to feel comfortable starting treatment for fungal disease. Okay. Uh, I would still want to take x-rays of the chest because it gives us important information. Do you think we can do both of those things for the two to three cupcakes if we don't charge for in-house cytology? Well. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> okay. I think <laughs> I think we might be able to finagle something maybe, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. So radiographs were done and showed no significant findings. Interesting. Okay. I'm still at fungal disease, though. All mm -hmm. right, go ahead. In-house cytology was suspicious for fungal organisms. The slide Uh went out to the... (laughs) The slide was sent out to the pathologist, and a diagnosis was achieved. Yeah. It's blastomycosis. Blastomycosis! Oh, yeah, JJ. Okay. Very interesting that the chest x-rays were clear, but we will talk about that here in a few minutes. Yeah, I think that okay. was Murphy's Law. Yeah, I. <laughs> so this, you know, what a rewarding case, right? Like you are doing like these rechecks over and over. You're the second opinion. You're just like, what the fuck? We really need more tests and we can't do them. And then finally, like your Hail Mary thing hits pay dirt. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's got to be satisfying right there. That's got to be yeah. satisfying. Yep. For sure. Let's move on to to talking about like what the diagnosis was and how we manage it. So what exactly is blastomycosis? Okay. Well, blastomycosis uh, is a disease caused by a systemic fungal infection. Blastomyces species are the little organism responsible. They are dimorphic saprophytic fungi that are found in soil and organic matter. Now, blastomycosis can affect many species, but dogs and humans are most often affected. Cats are not really commonly affected, but they can be. There have been reports of rare infection in wolves, deer, ferrets, horses, African lions, dolphins, and sea lions. Usually, blastomycosis causes a systemic pyogranulomatous disease, though occasionally it can be focal or just confined to one area. It usually affects the respiratory system, but it can involve other organ systems such as the eyes and the skin, and it is associated with significant morbidity and mortality. What that means is the patients have a bad time with this. They really suffer. It's really a shitty disease, and they die a lot from this. Blastomycoses 
Dermatitidis is the most commonly reported species that affects dogs and cats. In dogs, immunosuppression might be a risk factor for the development of these systemic fungal infections. JJ, talk a little bit about the prevalence of blastomycosis and where we might find this disease. Okay. Blasto is endemic to several regions of North America, places like the Mid-Atlantic states, Ohio, Mississippi, Tennessee, Missouri, and the St. Lawrence River Valley, Great Lakes region, and the Canadian province of Manitoba, Quebec, and Ontario. It has been reported in Africa, India, Europe, and Central America. Blasto likes to live in areas where there are natural water sources and where the soil is sandy, moist, and acidic and contains a lot of decaying vegetation. Gee, how does the infection occur? Conidia that the organism produces are inhaled, and that's how patients are infected. Uh, Conidia are asexual, non-modal spores of the organism. Now, once those spores are inhaled and sort of incubated by the warm temperatures of the body, they convert to a yeast stage and they begin to rapidly multiply. The organisms spread via the lymphatic system and the, and the circulatory system to result in granuloma formation in multiple organs. Now, we can see this in a lot of different locations, like the respiratory tract, the eyes, lymph nodes, bones, and skin. We can also see it in the urogenital system, the central nervous system, and heart, but these are rare. And then infection of the prostate, testes, larynx, and even joint involvement have been reported. Again, not commonly. Pulmonary disease, so lung disease, is the most common presentation in dogs. So like 88 to 94% of cases present with pulmonary disease. That's why I was so surprised that the x-rays in the case that JJ presented were normal. So pathology is present in the respiratory tract in the majority of cases, even if the pet is not having respiratory signs. So if the pet's not coughing, they're not having trouble breathing, you should really take x-rays of the chest just anyway, because it's very likely that they have respiratory involvement. Now, the eyes are also commonly affected. Pyogranulomatous uveitis occurs in about 48% of blastocases, so like almost half. That's a lot. Yeah, that's that's where my my uh, unhappiness of eyeballs came I'm sorry. from. JJ has an eyeball phobia, so I'll try yeah. to get through the eye stuff quickly. JJ, okay. Well, that there was a dog that had blasto, and I didn't okay. know anything about that at the time, uh-huh. and it had really bad glaucoma, uh-huh. and the eye ended up rupturing on yeah. my arm. Mm. Oh, on and your I, arm! It, <laughs> oh, no. His eye was on me. I that had to leave. Gross. It was not cool. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry that happened. Blech. And also for the dog. I feel pretty bad for that dog, too. Mm-hmm. Did, how did that dog do? Did it do okay? Um, Yeah, they ended up, yeah. you know, of course, taking the eye and, sure. yeah. you know, treating it for a while. It was a corgi. A and, corgi. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And it, it, I mean, this was back in, back in the day, so mm-hmm. I'm sure it's no longer with us now. But um, it came in a couple of times after that and for, you know, at least... The six months I was still there, it was still coming in. So Interesting. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So we talked about the pyogranulomatous uveitis, but you can also see choreoretinitis, retinal detachment, glaucoma, endophthalmitis, and panophthalmitis. Overall, the incubation period for blastomycosis is between 5 and 12 weeks. So, JJ. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about how to recognize these blastomycosis patients 
when we're using our physical exam. Okay. So respiratory symptoms are common. You'll hear coughing, tachypnea, stridor, increased lung sounds, crackles, or respiratory distress. Eyes, you'll have blepharospasm, which is blinking or squinting a lot. Episcleral injection, aqueous flare, swelling of the iris, granulomatous chorioretinal lesions, retinal detachment, and secondary glaucoma. Usually a fever greater than 102.5 is present. You'll also notice enlarged lymph nodes, uh, ulcerated and or draining skin lesions, cutaneous or subcutaneous masses, lameness, pain on palpation of bones or joints, CNS signs, dysuria, hematuria, testicular swelling, and then sometimes can be nonspecific like decreased or absent appetite, lethargy, depression, and weight loss. And when we're taking a look at that list, the patient that JJ was telling us about has a lot of these signs. So we didn't have the respiratory or the ocular involvement, but we had the fever, the lymphadenopathy, the draining skin lesions, the subcutaneous masses, and we had the decreased or absent appetite, the weight loss, the lethargy, and the depression. Patients with blastomycosis can have any of these symptoms. They don't have to have all of them. When we're taking a look at lab findings for these patients, we're going to see some common threads running through. So for a complete blood count, we will see some nonspecific changes. Those reflect uh, the inflammatory response that the body is going through, similar to what we were seeing with the case JJ presented earlier. One interesting thing that we can see is hypercalcemia. So that's elevated calcium. Now, this occurs secondary to granulomatous inflammation. It doesn't occur that often. Incidence rate is less than 10%, but we really need to know about this if it's, if it's present and control the signs if it's there. Hyperglobulinemia or increased globulin and hypoalbuminemia or low albumin are common in these patients. And the one that we presented had the high globulin. Again, you don't have to have all of the signs for it to be blasto. So cytology can be performed on the granulomas lymph nodes, draining tracts. Uh, a lot of the time, those draining tracts will contain a large number of organisms. Cytology is the bread and butter of diagnosis when these draining tracts are present. <laughs> you could also do cytology on lung aspirates, on sputum, which is like the stuff that dogs cough up, effusions or joint fluid. These might not yield uh, organisms as readily, though, as the draining tracts. On cytology, the classic thing that you're going to see that, that makes it blastomycosis is big, blue, broad-based budding yeast. That's so that's what you're going to look for. Yeah. Bubba-bubby. Now, radiology is important in these guys. We already talked about thoracic radiographs. And they're abnormal in most cases, like more than 94% of dogs, even without respiratory signs, will have evidence of blastomycosis on thoracic rads. So. You know, if you're not getting a diagnosis anywhere else, take x-rays of the chest, even if they're not coughing, because sometimes that will tip you off that fungal disease is what's happening. The classic pattern that we're going to see with fungal disease is a snowstorm pattern, but it can have other appearances. Uh, so sometimes might need to even get a radiologist to help us uh, give an interpretation there. Solitary pulmonary or mediastinal masses that we see with blasto can be mistaken for neoplasia sometimes. So that's why sampling of those lesions is important. When present in the bones, like when there's osteomyelitis from blasto, 
Uh, it usually causes solitary lesions that are osteolytic. So we see basically it's eating away the bone. And they may be accompanied by periosteal proliferation. Again, this can look an awful lot like neoplastic lesion or cancerous lesion. Typically, the blastomycosis lesions are going to be at the ends of long bones, often below the elbow and below the stifle. Now, ultrasound might help us with our diagnosis as well. If you're having a patient who's having those ocular effects, you can use ocular ultrasound and that can reveal mass-like lesions in patients when the posterior segment can't be visualized with other methods. And then if you're doing an abdominal ultrasound, you might see nodules in multiple organs that are granulomas. Again, could be easily mistaken for metastatic disease if you're not careful. In these patients that have gone for advanced imaging like CT or MRI, we can see blastomycosis with atypical locations like the central nervous system and the orbit, which is like the eye socket. Now, the next thing that I want to talk about is antigen and antibody tests for blastomycosis. So. The urine blastomycosis quantitative antigen, or EIA, test from MiraVista Laboratories is really the gold standard test. Um, this is done on urine. This test has data showing that it's 100% sensitive and highly specific. Sweet. <laughs> That's a... It's a pretty good test. Mm -hmm. Now, you will see cross-reactions with other systemic fungi. So it might show up positive for blasto and be some other fungus. I'm not sure how bad that is, though, because we kind of treat most fungal illnesses the same, whether it's mm -hmm. blasto or something else. Now, it's important to know that this urine antigen test is not intended to be the sole means of diagnosis. You have to combine it with other clinical and diagnostic findings. Besides urine, it could be performed on serum, plasma, fluid from a bronchioalveolar lavage, uh, cerebrospinal fluid and other bodily fluids, but really it's designed for urine. And it's more sensitive than the auger gel immunodiffusion tests. So the AGI tests, the auger gel immunodiffusion tests, are kind of not run as much because they're just not as good as this urine antigen test. The AGI tests don't produce results that help us a lot of the time. So a negative test doesn't rule out the disease, especially early in infection. You can also see, quote, false negatives in immunosuppressed patients or in situations where the infection is localized to one area rather than systemic. And then any previous exposure to blasto can yield a positive result, even if the patient's not suffering from blastomycosis right now. It's not causing their disease currently. Uh, so those results can kind of be confusing. Mm. Really, the only way to differentiate the two species of blastomycosis would be to do histopathology on the lesions. Uh, again, it probably is not going to really change what we do clinically because we treat both species of blastomycosis the same. Fungal cultures are not recommended in these cases because we're concerned about the safety of lab personnel in growing organisms like this. Now that we've talked about how we can identify blastomycosis on a physical exam and the types of changes that we're looking at on lab tests. Can you tell us more about how often blastomycosis occurs and the types of dogs that we're going to see it in? So incidence is 1% to 2% in the endemic areas. Affected animals often live within about a quarter of a mile of water, most prevalent after periods of heavy rainfall. 
Young male large breed dogs, usually between one to five years of age, have the highest incidence, uh, particularly hounds, pointers, and Weimariners. But any age, sex, and breed can be affected. So let's talk about treatment. Okay. Well, treatment is kind of a short discussion, uh, which is <laughs> different than a lot of the diseases that we talk about. Yeah, so it is. Okay, there is a clear-cut treatment of choice, and that is the drug itraconazole. It is very expensive. Lots of cupcakes. Like, very. Uh, cupcakes, like 20 cupcakes a month, Ooh. if you're paying full price. Okay, a lot. So uh, here's some info about itraconazole. You'd never want to use it compounded, okay? You only want to use the brand name. You need to let the owners know right off the bat that treatment is not a quick thing. It takes months, like six months. So you need to have them financially prepare for using this itraconazole. Generally, we use the drug one month beyond the remission of clinical signs, and then we try to come off of it while watching really carefully for any sign that it's coming back. Some practitioners go at least six months, no matter what. It's like they'll say, like, we're going to do it six months before we even consider stopping. It's available in liquid and capsule forms. Uh, the capsule absorption is improved by giving it with food. And there's a potential hepatotoxicity. So giving this medicine can create issues with the liver. When you have a patient taking this medicine, really you need to be evaluating that patient, like, at least monthly and running some serial chemistry profiles to make sure that the liver's not being affected. Do they usually get put on like a liver protectant during that? It's a great question, JJ. I did not run across that in my research at all. Um, I guess you're you're kind of probably referring to like the SAMI products, like Denimarin would mm -hmm. be a common brand name. I can't think of a reason why that would be harmful. It might, though, substantially add to the cost. Yeah, because sure. if you think about the type of dog that we usually see, uh, like a large breed dog, mm -hmm. you know, denimarin can be quite expensive. So if we're having to pay for itraconazole and denimarin, I don't know of any studies that show that denimarin is of particular benefit. But I also mm -hmm. admit that I did not look it up. So I can and then we can give an update if I find anything. Cool. So the next drug that you could consider is fluconazole. Like with itraconazole, you want to use fluconazole at least a month beyond clinical remission. Fluconazole is a lot less expensive than itraconazole, but it's also less effective. And there's also less liver toxicity, though. So it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, there's, there's no one perfect answer. Itraconazole we think works better. But I've seen cases respond to fluconazole. I don't think it's a wrong choice. I always offer itraconazole as the first line, but I've treated plenty with fluconazole and, and had them do okay. Uh, now, if you ever start fluconazole and the patient's not improving, obviously then that means we got to change to itraconazole. Mm. So studies have shown that it takes longer to treat with fluconazole than with itraconazole. And um, the fluconazole might, might actually have better CNS and prostate penetration than itraconazole. So if you have one of those rare cases with those types of involvement, it actually might move up to like your first line of defense. Hmm. The last medication that I'm going to talk about just really quickly is an old school medicine called amphotericin B. Uh, it's really reserved for the ultra severe infections like those in the central nervous system. There's a risk of nephrotoxicity with it that, that's quite severe. Before we had other drug options, this was used a lot more, but now it's really not commonly used and unless the case is like very severe 
and as a last resort. So we've talked about sort of the main drugs. JJ, what sorts of other things might we consider using to help with the patient and how they're feeling while they were battling this illness? So there's a controversial use of anti-inflammatory drugs. Okay. I don't know why they're controversial, but... Well, uh, probably because if you're using itraconazole and you have the hepatotoxicity and now you're adding like an inset on top of that. Gotcha. I'm guessing that's why. Yep. That makes sense. Yep. Steroids may help with severe inflammation, and some people use them for the major yeast die-off after starting therapy, but studies have not shown improved survival with steroids. You can consider them if the pet has uveitis secondary to the blasto, oxygen for severe respiratory cases, wound therapy for skin lesions, analgesics for bone or joint pain, and oral antibiotics for secondary bacterial infection. Like we talked about earlier, you can't just set it and forget it with these patients. They need to come in pretty frequently. So what we're talking about is repeated serial exams to assess for response to treatment. And then if, especially if we're on itraconazole, at least a monthly CBC and chemistry profile is recommended. But this might not be possible due to finances in all cases. So you know, if we're already spending a lot of money on itraconazole, people might be like, look, we, we can do the itraconazole or we can test, but we can't do both. And of course, we would pick the itraconazole uh, when faced with that <laughs> dilemma. Some people use the urine antigen test that we talked about earlier to monitor for resolution before stopping the meds. The downside, again, is cost. It's like a three cupcake test, okay? Mm. Uh, so if you think about doing that serially, that adds up really quickly. Uh, Again, especially with the cost of medicine that you're already paying. Some use thoracic radiographs to monitor. I don't know that you would like wait for radiographic signs to be completely gone before you stop because we've seen that they continue to improve. So we want to go mostly on like clinically how the pet is doing. And then once we get to the point where we feel comfortable stopping therapy, pets need to be rechecked serially. So at least at month one three, and six after stopping therapy, and we need to get in right away if there's any evidence of relapse. Now, JJ, how well do we expect patients with blastomycosis to do in general? So the prognosis is considered good for most cases. Uh, Recovery rates range from 50 to 75 percent. Dogs with hypoxemia and respiratory failure have a worse prognosis. Um, Those mortality rates are as high as 41 percent. CNS involvement equals a worse prognosis. Mm-hmm. Prognosis is also poor when more than three body systems are affected. For ocular disease, uh, you might be able to save the vision, you might be able to save the eye, you might not be able to save either. It's kind of variable. If the patient has panoptomitis and secondary glaucoma, that is equal to a poor prognosis. Yeah. Yeah. And on those eyes, when we say that the you know prognosis is is variable, what we're meaning is You might lose the eye. Obviously, if you lose the eye, you don't have vision anymore, okay, out of Mm -hmm. that eye. Or you might be able to save the eye but not save the vision. Sometimes you can save both. You can save the vision and the eye, but it's just extremely variable and comes down to the individual case. So that's a pretty good review of blastomycosis. Mm -hmm. JJ, what happened with the case that you were telling me about earlier? That patient was started on itraconazole. And one month into therapy is significantly improved. Oh, awesome. Mm-hmm. We uh, have no more lymph node enlargement or draining tracts. 
the subcutaneous granulomas are resolving, and the mandibular swelling is 80% improved. That's great. That's awesome. What a rewarding case. Like, yeah. I mean, to go from just like beating your head against the wall with all these rechecks and we can't do tests, we got to do one test at a time. And I'm sure that if if this veterinarian is like me, tensions are running high. And I, you know, I often feel like when I can't, when I, whenever I feel like there's something bad going on, I know the stuff that I need to do to get to the answer, but all of that stuff is out of our reach. I feel so frustrated Mm-hmm. Uh, about being able to <laughs> to do anything for the patient, you know, it just drives me crazy. So, so I can really sympathize with how this vet was feeling mm-hmm. in going through all of this stuff. So, <laughs> now one one thing that I do want to mention about treating blastomycosis, I know we've talked several times about how itraconazole is very expensive. So, there is a coupon on GoodRx right now. As we know, GoodRx is variable and it, this might not last forever. But I can tell you that at least right now, as of 2022, there is a coupon on GoodRx that is like crazy. It's <laughs> like, I mean, I, you're paying 10% of what you would normally pay. Like it's wow. insane. When I saw it, I was like, holy crap. So, you know, and who knows, like sometimes they're advertised and then the, the pharmacy won't take them or they're, quote, old codes, or they, quote, don't work for dogs, or, you know, people like to come up with all sorts of excuses. But anyway, look on GoodRx if you are struggling to get your patient itraconazole. Mm. And just a reminder, do not use compounded itraconazole. If there's a cost issue and you can't find the GoodRx coupon, don't go compounded. Just go to fluconazole instead as your next step. Well, I think that about covers it for blastomycosis. Yep. To be such a frustrating thing to diagnose, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. (laughs) Like the hardest part of dealing with blasto and fungal diseases is getting the diagnosis. But really, it's very straightforward what you do after that. So that's that's the good news, I guess. Like it's smart and it it knows that it's easy to treat it. Well, easy, as long as you have lots of money or Uh, lots of cupcakes. I mean, and treatment doesn't always work, but I mean, prognosis is good if you figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of these dogs do really well. I like it. So we have a few minutes left. Uh, So we didn't, in the last two episodes, do a favorite thing at all. So I think we should do a favorite thing this week. Oh, goodness. This week. Yeah. I think it will be easy for you to pick one. I don't know. There's so many. (laughs) Well, list several. You don't have to pick just one. Okay. Um, I guess one favorite thing is uh, I am starting a new job next week. Mm-hmm. That's very exciting because I get to mm-hmm. work from home. Yeah. I get to be compensated well. And yes. <laughs> it's also doing something that's super interesting. And uh, so I'm super excited about it. That's awesome. No more and then, general practice for me. <laughs> yeah, you're you're throwing in the towel for now, huh? Yes. Yes. I Go into a... that remote only life. Mm-hmm. That's that's fine. Sometimes you need that. Yep. Um, You've put in a lot of decades, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 ready to, you know, it be me, myself and I <laughs> and my team that is not super big. Um so I'm excited about that. Also, yesterday we added a new family member to the Jones household. Mm-hmm. Little Fizgig Ferdinand 
is oh my god currently probably in the den playing with a little peanut toy that he seems to really like um he's been adjusting really well surprisingly he kind of puts himself to bed when he's tired oh dear he uh his uh breeder is super amazing at keeping them on a schedule and i mean you could tell that his bedtime is when it is on that schedule she gave me because he <laughs> started wandering toward his location where his bed is and you know was like whining wanting to get in it so i put him in there and he went right to sleep and i was like who, who what omg yeah oh dear we've been really good about getting him outside really frequently and luckily right as of right now anyway he hasn't had an accident in the house so um he's been pretty ideal for the first 24 hours <laughs> well, i think we'll keep fantastic. it <laughs> <laughs> oh no <laughs> oh boy jj was sending me photos and videos of him earlier <laughs> He's kind of junky. <laughs> yes. Yes, he is. He's, uh, he's super fluffy, too. Yeah. A lot of his, I mean, he's got some heft to him, but a lot of him is fluff. He's, <laughs> it's funny, you see him with his other litter mates and he's easily double their size, but, but he's, uh, he's a little heavenese and he's super cute. What about you, G? Okay. Oh. Well, um, I thought this week what I would do is, for my favorite thing, is make some podcast recommendations because. I feel like, on the whole, podcasts are a type of thing where you there's not really like a limit on the amount. You know what I'm saying? Like maybe it's just me because I travel so much now with everything like work and then also going to school. I feel like I'm in the car nonstop and I run out of podcasts to listen to. And I feel like maybe other people have this problem. Okay. So I thought I would take favorite thing time to go ahead and just make some formal recommendations. And I might have mentioned these in passing on the podcast before, but honestly, it is hard to remember over the years mm. what we've talked about from episode to episode. We probably need to start keeping a list because <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so the first recommendation that I have is a podcast called Heavyweight. Mm -hmm. Heavyweight is... Human interest stories. So that's like my jam. I absolutely love human interest stories. This particular podcast focuses on like the solving of old problems. So the host, Jonathan Goldstein, who got his start on This American Life, a classic podcast. If you've never listened to This American Life, you need to go listen uh, to, to that. But so Jonathan Goldstein hosts this other podcast called Heavyweight. He's got a very dry sense of humor. It's like right up my alley. He's very sarcastic. <laughs> and he will talk to a person about a problem that they've had in their life, maybe that they don't fully even understand. Then they will go back and contact the people that they had issues with before or, you know, just kind of dig into the past issue and try to get it resolved. So. To give you an example of what this would be like, there, there's one episode where a pair of brothers of advanced age had not spoken to each other in decades. And so he helps them get in contact and start speaking again. There's one where a girl experienced the death of her cousin early in life in a car accident and then therefore was terrified to drive and never got her driver's license. So he helped her get her driver's license. 
<laughs> There's one where this art student felt for decades that he was responsible for accidentally destroying these really important art pieces in an elevator. It's a long story. <laughs> but then when they go back and interview the people that he was interning with, they actually don't remember the incident the way that he remembers it. They remember him just never showing up to work again and not knowing why. Wow. And so it's just so interesting to see like how different people perceive things that happen and how the one story that you tell yourself isn't necessarily the true or right one. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, I think it's a therapeutic podcast to listen to because like it really digs in there. Mm -hmm. So I love that. Uh, okay. And so then, so that's one. And then another one that I think I have talked about before, but there's just, you can't over recommend this podcast. This is Hidden Brain with Sean Carr Vedantham. And uh, this is really interesting, just great episodes about brain science. Just fascinating listens always. Every time they put out a new episode, I get so excited and I go listen to it right away. <laughs> and then, okay, I will give one more. And that is another one that I might have mentioned before, but I just don't remember. And it's called Dear Therapists with Lori Gottlieb and Guy Winch. And these are two like pretty famous therapists and they um, have people onto their show to talk about a problem. And throughout the episode, they help them try to uh, make progress and resolve the problem. All the stories are real. They are delivered anonymously, though. And it is fascinating. So if and I know we talk about therapy a lot. If you've never experienced therapy before, you don't know like what it is or exactly what to expect. I actually think listening to that show would give you a pretty good idea of the types of things that you would work on in a therapy setting. So I would highly recommend that one as well. I want to check those out. Yeah, you should. I mean, holy crap. Like I've listened to every single episode that they've made of, in, of all of those podcasts. And I constantly obsessively refresh my phone to be like, is there another one? Is there another <laughs> one? Because it, get, it gets lonely driving all the way. Mm -hmm. Everything. I also listen to podcasts when I clean my house. So like, I don't know, between that and editing this podcast, is podcasting 50% of my existence? It, it could be. <laughs> it's possible. But that's hmm. not terrible. I, I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> okay. All right, guys. Well, I think that's all the time we have. If you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram. And it's at Introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. And we'll see you next time. Thanks and bye. Bye-bye.